Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent media and politics podcast. I'm joined by the original crew. Uh, I got Branco and Philip here this morning. How's it going? Great, Kyle. How are you going? Yeah, good. Wonderful. Exciting. OG, the OG three are back. Um, yeah. Free of COVID. Stronger than ever. <laughs> can't, Wait, can't get this done. Did you end up getting COVID in? No, no. I've caught every other disease, but okay. COVID free. Still COVID free. Impressive. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Wow. wow. Uh, even, even with uh, COVID rates going through the fucking roof in New Zealand, some of us are still managing to avoid it uh, by blind luck uh, <laughs> <laughs> as much as anything else. Uh, I know so many people who have taken every opportunity to mitigate um, and still ended up catching it by like it was sometimes other people just being idiots um sometimes yeah just they don't even know this is what this is what you get when you have a just a high background amount of covid circulating in society you can mitigate as much as you want but people are going to be near people and someone's going to get it mm. Is what we I know up. people here uh, in the United States who still haven't got it, which I'm uh, shocked by. Uh, well, like, who have only just got it, which is incredibly impressive. Um, we're, we're post-COVID now, um, so <laughs> let's not spend too much time talking about that. Uh, well, I, I mean, no, clearly that's a joke. Um, I think we've got a pretty good track record of calling out a lot of the failures on this stuff. Uh Maybe we'll talk a bit of a, a bit more um, in the middle of the cast. We're going to we'll talk about Health and Z. We're going to talk about Jacinda Ardern's travels around uh, Europe, uh, working with the European Union um, and having a chat with NATO. But where we wanted to start this morning uh, was to talk about the very recent uh, designation uh, of the United States Proud Boys group as a terrorist organization in New Zealand, which is, I'd argue, a, a pretty big shift uh, in the way that the security apparatus here handles these kind of groups uh, in, in a number of ways. Well, yeah, clearly the national security establishment of New Zealand is um, trying to kind of uh, rectify the, the thing that was criticized for in the wake of the Christchurch massacre, which was the fact that they uh, were obsessed with, with uh, Islamic or Islamist terrorism um, and paid absolutely no attention to, to right-wing terrorism. Um, so I, I feel like that's, this in some ways connected to that. It's, uh, it's, it's, a way to signal to the public, hey, we actually, we're taking this seriously um, and we're not, you know, just uh, 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 ignoring it as we did in previous years. Um, I guess the question for me is what, what this actually means uh, in practice, you know, uh, you know, the Proud Boys are a uh, repulsive, awful group, um, as are the, the base, um, the, the, the other kind of white supremacist organization that they've designated um but what is, what is it you know we've designated terrorist organizations okay um what does that actually mean what does that what does that change about how we're approaching uh how we deal with this kind of uh, extremism yeah it doesn't it doesn't mean anything in terms of resources actually being diverted in a way that makes more sense right that's and i mean we won't know that stuff that's the nature of these secret government um organizations right 
Um, and there's always been this uh, massive kind of bias to look away from the, I mean, white people basically, right? It's it's pretty fundamentally racist way of understanding threats. Like uh, Maori sovereignty movements are scary because um, they're brown. Uh, Islamic terrorist groups are scary because they're brown, but uh, right-wing hate white supremacist groups are less scary because they're misunderstood uh, cousins. You know, it's the same. It's the same pool that they're swimming in as the kind of fanatical nationalist uh, people who love to surveil us and watch what we do. Right. So it's. I think it's less fundamentally terrifying to them when they see these organisations, and that's the problem. It's not. Uh, which organizations specifically are on the on the masthead that they're meant to be watching so i guess we'll see right we'll see if they actually change the way they do business but it doesn't i'm not holding out any hope for that there are a couple of immediate changes uh around what is legal in new zealand to do uh so you're not allowed to support these groups financially now um for example so if if you're found to be funneling uh the proud boys money from new zealand you'd be in hot water um so there are some mechanisms there now uh where if those groups are trying to get a foothold here uh it would be well this is the thing we don't know what um you know our security services actually do about it but uh on the face of it they would have more power to act against those groups organizing here in New Zealand. Um, whether they would or not, uh, you know, falls back into the, the categories that you were just explaining, Philip. Um, what's interesting to me is that neither of those groups has really had anything to do with New Zealand. Um, and there are, is one uh, kind of neo-Nazi white supremacist group that has had something directly to do with New Zealand. Um, uh, called As of Battalion. Um, I know that, you know, it, it's very, it's become a an issue to, to talk about it because because Putin has also signaled the, singled them out. Um, yes, we know Putin is bad, um, but this is a group that uh, arguably or, or presumably trained the Christchurch uh, shooter. Um, we know that they actively disseminated his manifesto um, they were, you know, they're the ones that were making sure that it got out there uh, after it got banned in a, a bunch of places, including New Zealand. Um, if we were going to start designating white supremacist um, groups as terrorist organizations in New Zealand, they would have been top of my list. Uh, and it's really interesting to me that they haven't been included. Um, instead, the, the reasoning behind uh, Proud Boys in the Base being included was the Gen 6 um, uh, insurrection uh, in, in the states, but I mean, which is like a, a fair uh, kind of pipeline for this sort of thing. But in terms of what is a risk in New Zealand, uh, mm. as of has you know a, a background, it, like there has something has happened here. Yeah, you're completely right, Carl. I mean, I think it, uh, it points to the, the sort of incoherence of uh, how we approach this stuff. Um, you know, I mean, uh, I think we generally have warned about the dangers of, of what happens, you know, in, in a country where uh, these fire groups like Azov, uh, like other fire militias, uh, are actually pretty uh, influential, um, pretty well organized and mobilized. 
what happens if you know you send thousands upon thousands of, of firearms you know not just rifles and, and, and pistols but grenade launchers and, and other things what happens uh uh, when those get into the hands of people like that. I mean, even right now, we, we already see reports that, uh, that, that actually one Ukrainian um, uh, uh, official described Ukraine right now as a, as a supermarket for, uh, for illegal weapons, um, where basically because there's so much that has been just poured into the country um, and because the U.S. And, and NATO don't know where this stuff goes when it crosses the border from Poland or some other neighboring NATO state into Ukraine, uh, it, it's sort of just, it's a Hail Mary. It's, well, we hope that this ends up in the right hands. Um, and, but we know that, that at least some of them are not. Um, and yeah, so I, I think it does point to this kind of contradiction in, in how we think about this. Uh, you know, we want to designate um, groups like this, terrorists, but then at the same time, we're kind of tacitly, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little more later uh, in the episode when we, when we discuss some of the, the NATO stuff, but, but we're tacitly kind of supporting this policy where um, we are saying, well, in this case, we actually need to support um, some neo-Nazi militias, uh, even if they're the ones who directly inspired the guy who killed dozens of, of uh, New Zealanders uh, all those years ago. Um, I, one other thing I would, I would point out as well is that uh, the Proud Boys, at least, um, this is well-documented, uh, were used by uh, the US law enforcement um, uh, establishment as uh, uh, as informants um, uh, to, to target in some cases uh, the left to target things like anti police brutality protesters. So uh, at this, you know, we, we're declaring them a terrorist organization. Yet we're also increasingly aligning ourselves with the uh, national security state of the United States, which is uh, using those same terrorist groups uh, to, to target the left uh, and, and to target other uh, protesters uh, that, that we might sympathize, sympathize with um, in the US. Uh, so that's another kind of level of, of incoherence and contradiction there that I think if people knew more about it, they would say, okay, well, maybe we should have a discussion about this. Maybe we should have a bit of a debate about what is this the right thing to do? But I think at the moment, because people quite understandably, they want to support Ukraine, and I think the, the unfortunate conclusion that they've, and I think the misguided and wrong conclusion I've taken is, well, we should just not talk about this stuff at all um, because that would be undermining kind of the, the cause of Ukraine. Um, and I think that's not true. I think you can talk about the risks here and, and debate about what the right policy is while also you know, having solidarity and providing yeah. actual materials. I think something that is, is sometimes missed is, I mean, in our case, we're a small independent left media organization um, other similarly small independent media organizations as far as uh, media reach um, and the ability to change narratives go, uh, aligning uh, in very heavy air quotes uh, with some of the uh, outrageous propaganda that, that Putin is disseminating is not actually having the effect that people say it is. Um, it's, you know, you know, we're not, we're not a CNN, we're not a, a Fox, um, who, who are trying to run these lines. These conversations can be had from the left and can be had constructively, uh, and to just blanket rule things out whenever someone captures it, uh, as a propaganda point, just, it's, it's the opposite 
um, of anything that uh, charitably uh, people are trying to do when they have um, these discussions. And it's frustrating. It is. Um, interesting uh, point around, you know, the use of uh, informants and agent provocateur because, you know, in, in people's, in the back of people's minds, they know this stuff exists and there are stories, uh, even in the New Zealand context, uh, that pop up maybe once a year, once every two years about um, police informants being involved with like environmental movements, for example, and actively trying to push um, those groups to be more extremist. Like we, we know that this is a, a problem with security services. Um, and we know that when informants um, are involved in these groups, they try and prove you know they have kpis they, they try and try and meet those so they can stay on the um on the government dollar uh such as it is mm. i i don't know how easy it is to to have that conversation it seems even when there's a, a good investigative journalism piece uh it quickly gets swept away um mm. i don't know what the answer I, I to that is I'll just add one more note of caution I think people should keep in mind. Uh, just because the uh, just because the government has designated these groups terrorist organizations does not necessarily actually mean that they have shifted their focus from what they've traditionally targeted, which tends to be, as you say, environmental groups, uh, various left, uh, left-wing or left-leaning causes. Uh, that's happened in the U.S. increasingly, you know, uh, the FBI and, and, and the Department of Homeland Security and um, all these other kind of agencies, they have started to, to, to whereas they used to focus on uh, Islamic extremists, they've now, in their public-facing rhetoric, they've, they've increasingly looked to uh, and, and, and talked about white supremacists and, and far-right terrorists and, and the like. Um, but that doesn't actually mean that they have stopped targeting Muslims or uh, uh, Black Lives Matter protesters. Uh, in fact, that's still going on. Um, yep. So I think it's important to note that sometimes, I'm not saying that this is a completely just sort of cynical, cosmetic kind of um, uh, a thing that, that the government has done to sort of mask uh, the fact that it's still going to be doing this. I think they probably do realize, hey, these are, these are, Fire terrorism is a dangerous force, and we do have to kind of um, uh, confront it and, and 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 talk about it. But I think also we shouldn't then think that they've completely uh, uh, jettisoned some of their bad behavior of, of years and decades past. They're still going to be finding, you know, environmental groups uh, and animal rights groups and and all manner of other left wing yeah. protesters and threats. Again, yeah, we've got groups like Voice for Freedom and Counterspin here who regularly engage like daily um in like really violent rhetoric um that you can only say really if you're um with any level of like decent analysis that they are actively trying to uh signal or or spark stochastic uh actions um like they're just it's some of the stuff that, that comes out of these channels and, you know, it's accessible, um, is, is just terrific. And you don't really see anything about that at all. You don't see anything, you know, there are these groups which are like the active groups who, who go out and, and protest and, and do the violence uh, like Proud Boys, but there's this whole ecosystem behind that. Um, and until we see something 
Dharma about those, uh, especially more homegrown groups here um, and their funding channels, because funds going from New Zealand to the Proud Boys doesn't mean shit. Uh, money coming in from the States um, to like stochastic uh, media organizations and uh, pop-up grassroots um, extremist groups is is a way bigger problem. And unless there's something not just there, money, you know, it's not, and not just money. No. I mean, it's it's literally weapons um, that are going as well. So yeah, yeah, it's it's frustrating. That's a really good point. And I mean, I I tend to think about labeling these organizations as like a, a fundamentally political kind of act that we pretend isn't political, right? Saying the um, trying to draw equivalence between um, you know political party come freedom fighting organizations in one country versus yeah, a stochastic terrorism organization that's decentralized in another country versus kind of a um, agitprop kind of organization in a third country. Like these are very like inherently geopolitically weighted decisions that we sub out to an organization with, a you could generously say mixed record on um, being able to predict what the actual threats are in New Zealand, right? Um, so I think we, we sort of treat these things both too seriously and not seriously enough in different ways. Um, but yeah, Carl, that's a great point. Like if you were treating this from a, a purely what's the greatest threat uh, standpoint, this probably isn't where you'd start. And that probably says something about um, the priorities of our uh, security state. I mean, whenever, whenever there's a conversation about uh, gang patches, banning gang patches as National brought up recently, um, liberal and progressive people in New Zealand have this pretty, you know, sympathetic, nuanced kind of understanding of people are involved with gangs for personal reasons and they're connected to their cultural cultural kind of upbringing and society. And, you know, just because you're in a gang doesn't mean you've done X or Y. And yet when we talk about uh, terrorist organizations, quote unquote terrorist organizations, there's there's a line between that for some reason, right? The The action versus connection line is quite different so maybe maybe it's more useful to think about this in a similar way in that you know what are you actually doing that's bad in these organizations rather than which organizations are you connected to are you wearing a, a proud boys patch and doing hate crimes or are you just wearing a proud boys patch right there's you can draw a similar kind of connection i think and that's you know again that's not to say that these organizations are sympathetic or even neutral like these are all pretty repulsive organizations but that's the point like it's too easy to to blur that line, I think. Yeah, I think like you always have to be asking um, what are the presumed goals of this organization and what are they, what actions are they actually taking? Um, what, what is their intent? Um, and you know, there, there is like some, um, what do you like, not magical thinking, but uh, you know, it is presumption. You know, you, you are um, trying to guess at uh, people's intents a lot of the time, but for, for the groups that I mentioned, they don't hide it, <laughs> you know, like they make very clear what they want. Um, and I'm happy to take that at face value. But, but look, if we're doing um, group guilt, then like we have to bear in mind what Bronco was saying before in that, you know, there are Asian provocateurs in organizations. If you're part of a, an environmentalist organization with two uh, SIS agents in, in cover or whatever, two cops, um, who've been in the organization for ages trying to make it more aggressive, then the, the aims of that organization could be quite different from your personal um, commitment to the organization oh. over time, right? 
So I think we have to be careful drawing kind of conclusions about individuals, guilt or or not. Oh, of course. Even stated aims of an organization because these things change over time, you know. I, I definitely agree with that. And we talked about this during, you know, our own um, little protest in front of parliament um, in, in New Zealand. Uh, a lot of people weren't there for the for the same reasons as the Nazis were there. Um, there were a lot of people who were scared and confused uh, and the way to reach those people was different uh, from the leadership of some of those organizations. Um, and yeah, I, I guess I, to, to be clear, I'm talking about the people who are leading uh, these organizations who are on camera doing this thing, doing things day after day after day. Uh, we don't need to guess at their intent to the same extent uh, yeah, as, yeah. as a random member of, of one of these groups. And that's, but that's a good example of like, we can impute guilt through their actions, right? Not through their associations. Like yeah. you can see what they're doing that's bad. That doesn't, that, that's not because they're in the Proud Boys, they're bad people, it's because they're doing, yeah. uh, you know, provoking hate crimes. <laughs> that's bad by itself, right? <laughs> um, talking about, no, I can't, I can't segue to health NZ off the back of that. Um, but that's, that's another, a big piece of news uh, on Friday. Um, just gone uh, July the 1st the government's I guess well, they've kind of been floating it since original um, the original Ardern uh, Labour New Zealand first half greens government uh, the consolidation of New Zealand's health services uh, under a single entity health New Zealand uh, so for those who don't know um, in New Zealand our health uh, services were organized by district health boards, so regional hubs, uh, all with their own leadership and management structures um, that then pulled funds um, from government via the ministry uh, and had a range of other, uh, uh, like, big confusing mess, like, horrible, horrible system that was horribly broken. Um, and whether or not um, health NZ and Z and the centralization of some of those functions is a is going to work um, or is even a good idea. Uh, there aren't many people who you get on record saying that the DHBs were working for New Zealanders. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. The um, even people who are fundamentally against the centralization of these services. I mean, it's a parallel conversation to the water infrastructure conversation in many ways, right? The three waters conversation um, is about something that in some form needs to happen but the debate as you say is about how and how and when it should happen right the district health boards were already a um a corporatized neoliberal kind of institution it's not it wasn't um any more economically democratic in the way that its defenders maybe 15 years ago would have would have tried to hold out um and over time the kind of managerialism of these organizations has only increased and the kind of corporate bloat has held them back. And there's so much debt in the district health boards, they can't afford to do anything. They can't afford to do what their remit is demanding they do. Um, so centralization from that perspective, I think makes a lot of sense. But to, to be the both sides centrist, I, I'm also not someone who um, thinks that local democracy in, in health is meaningless. I think it is important to um, consult with Kind of local groups like small towns have have health needs that we'll miss if we do a purely top-down um centralized nhs style um health system so like from that perspective 
voting for representatives in some ways, I think, made sense. But as we can see from the actual participation in district health board elections in New Zealand, nobody actually is involved with that, right? So it's not, it's not fulfilling the democratic mandate that it was set up to achieve. So we need some form of um, buy-in and kind of democratic mandate from people, but maybe more of like a, an outreach structure where people go to different communities and um, consult on their needs and actually proactively engage with people rather than the reactive democratic mode of waiting for votes and then buying in based on what basically a you know tiny uh, minority of people bother to vote for because that'll always be you know the most yeah. motivated minorities will be anti-fluoride anti-1080 these kind of people will keep cropping up as opposed to the kind of mostly apathetic majority who are mostly worried about funding changes and like where's the closest hospital and questions like that that are like really important for small communities we're, we're like a very small country, but quite dispersed. So there will be problems in the South Island and small towns that don't have access to doctors with particular skill sets. Or, you know, if you need emergency care in the middle of the night, where you live is a really important question, you know? Mm. I mean, I, I have no doubt that the, uh, the, the, the structures it was before was a problem. Um, but to me, the, the bigger issues with the New Zealand healthcare sector are the... All the other the festering problems, the, the the decades of underinvestment and the the understaffing that that leaves uh, people at work, uh, healthcare practitioners overworked and and just uh, stressed out, and and ultimately uh, wanting to go elsewhere, go overseas, and 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 or even just leave the profession altogether. I mean, there was that uh, piece of news recently that that Andrew Little was sent a letter um, a year ago warning him that, that they're basically staffing in New Zealand's healthcare sector was reaching a crisis uh, 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 point. And, you know, that was the kind of piece of news that, oh, look, they were warned about this a year ago, but we didn't, we didn't need a letter uh, from a year ago to know that. I mean, if it, presumably the people who are running our government uh, read the news and, uh, you know, relatively well-informed. At the very least, their staffers are reading news and giving them some sort of uh, little cheat sheet to, to know. So the, there's no way that they were unaware of, for instance, uh, the way that the pandemic-era uh, immigration policies were completely counterproductive uh, to, to actually maintaining a, a, a decent uh, healthcare system. Uh, the fact that we were we were basically pushing people out of the country because we wouldn't let their families come in, uh, you know, because we wouldn't give them uh, certain uh, immigration statuses, uh, because of you know uh, uh, the fact that people are underpaid as well. I mean, all this stuff. This is this has been well known news for a very long time, um, and and unfortunately, you know, this centralization has maybe fixed one issue. Um, at the same time, also, I think it's, it's by the way, uh, sucked up a lot of the investment that's, that's, that was put in by this government. You know, the government has kind of bragged about the fact that, look, look how much money we've poured into the healthcare sector, finally. Uh, this is the biggest investment of all time. But yeah, okay, but a lot of that is going to go into trying to create this, this new structure. Uh, meanwhile, everything else is, is that, that was always a problem, that has been a problem for so long, is, is still going unaddressed. Oh, those so, things take time, Bronco. Bronco, those things actually take time. And uh, <laughs> I, like, they've only just done it and it was a problem because of the DHBs. And if, if we don't give them the time to fix it, 
uh, and we vote someone else in instead, that's actually our fault because we didn't give them a chance. <laughs> Just three more years, three more years. It's always, always, it's, it, the problem is always that people are not voting hard enough and they just yeah. need to vote more. And then if they do, then the government will end up doing this stuff. That's or they'll do it the term after. We'll that, see. Well, that said, there were like some issues uh, around getting the DHBs to fix stuff uh, from, from what I've heard. So, you know, we've known for years that uh, a number of hospitals around the country are literally rotting. Um, and DHBs just weren't using the funds available to them to fix their buildings. You know, it just wasn't happening. Um, and then alongside, obviously, a construction <laughs> uh, materials um, crisis uh, that, that's become hard in the last couple of years. Um, but I can understand um, the minister's frustration with that and just wanting to say, okay, if, you're not, if the leadership in these DHBs is not going to make this stuff happen, I will make it happen. Um, there, there is something to be said for that from a, um, what do you say, a capital expenditure point of view. Like, okay, we've got this money centrally now. We need a hospital here. We're going to fix it or build it. Um, and that's happening now. We're not going to rely on a DHB having to balance its books to try and find the money to do this. The other, um, I think, big or rather possible positive um, is we know the, there were massive equity problems. Uh, you alluded to some of those uh, before, Philip, uh, with the DHB model um, for some communities. One of those uh, was Maori. Um, there is now a Maori Health Authority, which is being created alongside Health NZ, which ostensibly um, is meant to uh, bridge some of that gap, which like already existed under the DHBs, despite the fact uh, that they were meant to be guided by their communities. Uh, and having that at a very close leadership level um, could, I, like, and I, I'm very skeptical, um, but could begin uh, to get rid of some, get rid of, um, address some of that inequity. Yeah, it's tiny and, and very underfunded, but it'll be interesting to see how it how it uses that that resource. And like, it's it's also important to bear in mind that the vast majority of this historic uh, health spend isn't new health programs, right? Or even really um, kind of infrastructure costs to prepare for future problems. It's paying off debt that the DHBs have racked up in all these weird little uh, you know, as Carl said, KPI ticking exercises over the last however long that they've been kind of dragging along. So it's it's more of like a papering over the the cracks solution than yeah. really setting up something new. Probably, probably, right? But we'll see how it actually gets implemented. So uh, final um, final judgments uh, out of five. Out of five, what do we reckon? <laughs> I don't know. It's a I guess. I mean, I'm sure it's going to do <laughs> something. It's going to do something. But I mean, you know, you, it's still uh, the issues with the access to healthcare in New Zealand are, are, doesn't seem like are really going to change. I mean, there's still going to be the the, the user pays model that that is an obstacle for people to actually get healthcare um, that that discourages people from from wanting to go to the doctor or you know in the in the case of dental care that just it's so prohibitive and expensive that, that people just end up with bloody rotting teeth um you know that this is not going to fix any of that well so was... there's, there's still issues remain but i guess you know they it's it's you know they haven't they haven't um neoliberalized 
uh, healthcare more, which is, a, I mean, I guess that's something. That's, that's, that's because they much, couldn't. Because they couldn't. I'd they say, could, yeah, yeah I, I'd, I'd say that they have pulled back from that. And, you know, we, we talk about structural change being needed instead of, um, you know, like, minute. Uh, what do we say? Like, you can't just solve one piece of it. A structural change is needed to, to make an actual difference in a lot of um, just, you know, Western uh, institutions. And this is definitely a big structural change. Um, I think it, it does pull us back a little bit from uh, the neoliberalism that came through in the 1980s, or at least potentially does, um, in that you don't have the DHBs um, all going and getting their own consultants and contracting all their different parts out individually. Um, that's happening at scale now. Uh, so fantastic. Um, but also the potential to actually build some more structures that fill those roles um, that aren't just being made bespoke uh, 28 different times. Uh, also, you mentioned dental. Something like Health NZ uh, makes it a lot easier to bring dental into uh, the public health system. Um, uh, again, arguably. Um, so And mental health care as well. That's yeah. true. It would, it would be much easier to um, unify these kind of things that are not really applicable in little kind of, you know, regional district, regional district health boards with all different kind of needs replicating the same service over and over again. So, yeah, for, so for structural change, I think like there's a lot of potential here and that's always good because otherwise there isn't, you know, like it, it's... There is very little potential in the way that New Zealand is currently structured for progressive change. Like that's just a, a fact of um, the last 40 years um, of our institutions. So if it's a big change, I, I'm, I'm all for it. Um, like shake things up, uh, introduce chaos. Maybe something good will come out of it when you roll the <laughs> dice uh, and random chance is better than what we had. <laughs> uh, five out of five. <laughs> The accelerationist take on healthy institutions. Well, five out of five. Great. Yeah, but, the New Zealand healthcare system as as Loki, the, the chaos. <laughs> just uh, yeah, just acting as a trickster, causing a little mess here, a little anarchy over there. Yeah, maybe something <laughs> we'll good will come happens. of it. Yeah, we'll see what happens. So, all that's been happening here uh, in New Zealand, um, with, with that kind of big uh, structural change. Um, We've had Andrew Little and, and Grant Robertson um, kind of holding the fort uh, here, doing, doing the media, um, doing the kind of leadership function um, to a large extent, while um, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, uh, right honourable uh, Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, has been out there in the world um, doing her first... Uh, Diplomatic rounds uh, since COVID began. Uh, she started off in Asia um, through Singapore and Japan, um, and she's made her way over to Europe this week. Uh, she's been in the UK as well, and it's just been signing deal after deal. Uh, things that, you know, even John Key couldn't get pushed don't, through. Don't you think? <laughs> very trump-esque of just now down to be making deals yeah uh, well that's what i thought as well when i first heard um but yeah like these these enormous um trade deal with the european union um i like i don't agree with uh, a lot of stuff that happens in this space but as far as prime ministerial 
metrics go, uh, some of the biggest international um, gains or successes that we've seen since before Helen Clark? In terms of the, the free trade deal? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is an achievement. Uh, you know, I don't know uh, enough about it to say just how uh, how much of a milestone it is. Um, I know the, uh, the the dairy industry, or at least the you know, uh, uh, beef industry, was not super happy with the results. They thought uh, it was a pretty minor benefit. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but... Um, you know, I mean, it does seem like it's it's going to provide economic benefits to New Zealand, and, and you know, you're right. As it, it builds on on some of the stuff Helen Clark did, and she of course signed the uh, the trade deal with China as well. Um, but um, to me, it also it brings up some questions about some of the other stuff that she was uh, doing, uh, which of course uh, I don't know if we want to get into that right now. But but of course, the other half of this was that. Uh, Ardern uh, went and, and, and spoke at the, the NATO conference. Um, and uh, perhaps you, you could see this uh, trade deal as, as perhaps some sort of a, a reward, I suppose, uh, for kind of increasingly aligning ourselves um, on the, on the uh, geopolitical front with, uh, with the United States and NATO. Um, you might also, you know, if you if you look at some of the the, the uh, beef industry's complaints, you could also talk about, you know, was it worth it? Did we did we get that much out of it? For, I just want to I want to like, note that because like the you know that, that's what we saw in the news in New Zealand um, was like mm. uh, okay they signed this deal like very huge gains everywhere for our exporters by the way, um, mm. yeah. and that includes yeah, that includes meat. Like they yeah. and also meat, meat is not the only thing that we produce. There's other other things that <laughs> the other industries in New Zealand that uh, employ many many people. That, Every other industry is like, oh my god, this is incredible. Yeah, yeah. it's good for it's good for honey, seafood, um, kiwi fruit. Yeah, there's another big one, kiwi yeah, horticulture, fruit, which are all mm -hmm. big and like honey in particular is like like a very fast growing industry, right? So mm -hmm. from a more like diverse diversity of export perspective it's it's good for for that side of things um i think it's a shame there aren't more kind of critical voices asking about uh, the problems in these industries and is it is it really the time to be scaling up uh seafood exports um from new zealand in the context of like climate change and biodiversity mm. crisis and all these questions right um but i mean no one's asking those questions that yeah, i think that was my you know the the ridiculousness of some of the critiques being given aside my major concern is that in some respects this seems to at least an exporter um framework lock us into being an agricultural hub and i i like no <laughs> can, can, can we not like that's i know that we're getting into a, a food security um arc uh, and, and, and global and, and our current civilization, um, climate change, you know, uh, the ongoing war um, uh, that Russia's uh, waging in Ukraine. Um, the, these have caused immediate issues. New Zealand was kind of created as an extractive colony to, to feed the UK. I don't want that to be like turned up to 10. Yeah, is it? You know, is it double down on this on this economic strategy right there's no one's asking those questions the 
it seems like the entire um, conversation you're allowed to have on trade is between the national and acts uh, criticism that the only thing wrong with this agreement is there wasn't enough for beef and dairy and uh, lamb. Yeah, because that we're not extracting more. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then on the on the other side, all you're allowed to say is, um, is it good enough on climate change is what the Greens have been saying, um, which there is something in it in terms of following the Paris Agreement, which, you know, still is, is kind of woefully uh, weak. But there were all the questions about, like, democracy that we had around the TPPA and, mm. um, like, trade deals more generally, yeah. who's it aligning us with? Like, like Branko said, these kind of geostrategic questions. No one's, no one's asking those questions. Yeah, and I'm not interested in being a primary producer um, at, like as our, as our core identity of our economics here in New Zealand. Uh, and further to that, we know that it's an incredibly damaging industry for uh like for everything here for our environment um i'm, yeah, I'm glad those... to see meat come down because that's mm. been the worst one but it's still gone up it's still it's still asking for further intensification and even more mm. intensification in agriculture which isn't as damaging but still has its problems if anything we should have been we should be scaling this stuff back. Yeah, meat, meat uh, they have complaints. But, I mean, the, the other winner of, of this is, is uh, butter. Um, and, I mean, where does butter come from? <laughs> you know, so uh, it's, yeah, it, it does potentially lock us into an economic, economic model that um, is not going to really work or make sense in the coming years. Um, maybe there's a way to, you know, I, I don't know exactly how, but perhaps you can maintain a fairly robust dairy industry while also um you know tailoring it to to fit with 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 some of our climate goals um but is is trying to thread that very fine needle going to be possible if we have kind of um uh, opened ourselves up or, or basically trapped ourselves into having to um produce more and more and more of this stuff and rely more on these industries uh, uh to to produce this so yeah uh questions that, that definitely are not being asked in this uh, context and the other the other current kind of running issue with the um international relationship there was that there was a, a whole series of um unions kind of civil society organizations had requested that if this organization if this trade deal was going to go ahead with the eu you know including switzerland the uk um if that was going to go ahead, they wanted a, a trips waiver, right? Mm, um, to yes. be part of to be part of that, so that um, we could start to break down this brutal vaccine inequality around the world. You know, less than twenty percent of people in the poor develop, developing world um, have had COVID vaccines, um, primarily because of IP restrictions from those very like hawkish, um, greedy countries. Uh, and that wasn't that, as far as we've seen, wasn't even kind of brought up. I haven't seen anyone. <laughs> try to say that it was even on the table. And it's definitely kind of thing that New Zealand should be leading on. You know, like Ardern has been talking about independent foreign policy and, and you know, we, we uh, can be leaders on the world stage. Look, go look, look at all these underdogs. <laughs> billions, billions of underdogs. Please fight for them when you have the opportunity to do that. And just, it wasn't mm. even like considered. It, it's always notable what's left out of these deals. Uh, it, you know, we've talked about some of the massive economic benefits that a bunch of these different industries are going to get. Um, but is there any uh, effort uh, that the government's gone to, to to ensure that that these economic benefits are actually going to go to the people who are producing them, you know, the, the, the workers of these companies? Or is this just going to, uh, you know, it's just all going to float to the top and it's not going to actually benefit anyone beyond just sort of the, the, the executives of these companies? 
that never gets talked about even yeah. though you would think that you know if we if we're gonna do this thing that's gonna lavish uh, a, a bunch of, of sweeteners mm. on on these uh, different sectors of the economy surely then as part of that compact we can ask them to say hey okay we're, we're granting you this you're going to benefit tremendously from this and we want to make sure that you're going to give enough um to the people who, who work for you the people who have actually uh do the work to, to 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 have made this possible um but that yeah not not on the table it's that's never the issue of labor mm. is never really um, on the table whenever it comes to these uh, trade deals, aside from maybe just uh, trying to weaken the rights of, of, of labor. And the other thing to, to keep in mind is local pricing uh, here in New Zealand. You know, this has been a, an ongoing irony for 20 years, at a minimum, um, is how cheaply um, a lot of the, our exports sell overseas um, to, you know, to compete um with european or, or uk prices and how crazy those prices are, are here in new zealand is if and with the excuse that all oh, these are export prices like you know we have to stay competitive with the export market so we have to charge more here at home that like one that doesn't make fucking sense um two is this going to drive up prices further now that they have more of a market overseas it could well um and there's been no discussion about that whatsoever. Let's move on, though, um, to the final part uh, that we want to talk about um, this morning, and that is Ardern, the, the first New Zealand Prime Minister to address NATO. Yeah, full... Oh, congratulations, I guess, <laughs> to us, I suppose. Commitment, right? New Zealand, Australia, all lining up with NATO against the, the great evils, Russia and China... Um, I could not believe that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's important to note, so so besides the fact that NATO, not just survived New Zealand, but uh, three other kind of Asia-Pacific countries uh, uh, to, to the conference, uh, alongside that, the other major piece of news that came out of this was that in the um, kind of the, the strategic uh, document they, they put out at the end of this, uh, for the first time, they didn't just talk about Russia, which NATO remember, was created in case the Soviet Union ever, ever decided to invade Western Europe. NATO was sort of the system of alliances to pre prevent that from happening. Um, and so it was, it was meant to be a defensive alliance. But now NATO is saying, you know, it's Russia's worth, a, sorry. a... It's worth, it's worth noting it's never really been that. But that, on paper, right, it was meant to be a yeah. alliance at first. I mean, it, it definitely changed, I would say, in the, in the 90s, when, you know, it, with the bombing of, of Yugoslavia, the, bomb, uh, the, the, the uh, Afghanistan mission, the uh, uh, Libya in, uh, uh, regime change operation. Um, th that had nothing to do with defending Western Europe. That was, it went way beyond the borders uh, uh, or the, the sort of original purview that it was meant to have. Um, and in this case, you know, they're saying, yes, Russia's a threat. It's a serious threat. But also for the first time, we see China as a strategic challenge. Now, I don't know how many people have a, an atlas uh, in front of them right now or have, you know, just a, a globe maybe sitting in their, in their room. Uh, have a look at where China is and where Western Europe is. Uh, these are completely separate continents. It's a completely different region of the world. And so what that's saying is now NATO is very subtly and, and, and slowly expanding, not just to, to, you know, over the past few decades, it, it swallowed up some of these Eastern European countries. But now it seems to be saying actually NATO's kind of sphere of, of, uh, of interest 
uh, goes beyond even Europe and into Asia, a, a part of the world that NATO states themselves are not at all located. It's the risks, um, yeah, the risks that China poses to the North Atlantic in particular are definitely considerable and need to be defended by the North Atlantic <laughs> Treaty Organization. Like it sounds yeah. like you're being facetious, Philip, but what I want to say is that <laughs> states in the Pacific should have the agency to join a North Atlantic Treaty Organization uh, <laughs> if, if they choose to. Well, except not... Pacific states who choose to sign any sort of uh, defense deal with China, that then, that's then different. the agency that's different. they, they well, don't yeah. they don't deserve agency. You, you can't have agency in that case. That's understood. That, that's unacceptable. I mean, you know, there's so much hypocrisy and, yeah. and, and so many glaring double standards in this. But you know, the, I, for me, there's there's a couple of really key takeaways from this that, that are pretty alarming. Number one, um, NATO, the way that this is moving, it, we're coming close to the, the same problems that led to the outbreak of World War I, where you had these interlocking systems of alliances. And once uh, tensions uh, 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 you know, were, 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 were boiled over or once uh, some sort of conflict was sparked between one member of, of an alliance and a member of a different alliance, um, suddenly what happened was there was a chain reaction and then all these different states were forced to uh, join this, what, what may have been a localized conflict and, and it became a world war, which was insanely destructive and murderous. Number one, uh, and, and by the way, that was an era when we didn't have nuclear weapons, but China and the US and, and Russia all do, as well as France and the UK. So that's number one. Uh, the, the, the other thing for, for uh, New Zealand, um, you know, we had to ask ourselves, is it really in our interest to number one, alienate or, or, or bait or, or um, antagonize a country that, don't get me wrong, the Chinese government does many, many, many things that I do not like, just the same way as the United States government does, the same way as the UK government does. Do we want to, though, antagonize them, given that they are our largest trading partner, the, the most e economically important country to us? Uh, and in second of all, do we want to draw, uh, get drawn into uh, this larger geopolitical fight, just as we did in World War One, when uh, uh, you know, thousands of Kiwis were sent to die for God knows what, we see that as one of the most just abysmal, shameful failures in our history. The fact that we um, that, that 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 for no reason we just sent uh, all these all these young boys. No, I was like, that was a story of heroism for a, for a foreign um, country, Bronco. That was a story of heroism, uh, and we fought against <laughs> evil, uh, and now yeah. we celebrate that. Um, <laughs> well, see that that was the that was the propaganda at the time. Now we say, you know, we we honor these their, their bravery. We honor the fact that they did this, that they that they gave their lives, even if it was senseless. But we now understand it was a completely idiotic and, and senseless war that New Zealand had nothing to do with. So, do we now want to put ourselves uh, into a position where we're getting dragged into into a war between another uh, 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 pair of, of great powers? I would say no. I, you know, I, I think for me, the most important thing is that New Zealanders are safe and secure and, you know, uh, have prosperous lives. Uh, I don't think any of that is going to come from um, getting, getting deeper and deeper involved uh, in this particular, this idiotic Cold War 2.0 that the United States is trying to start. And yeah, and NATO is ramping up capacity, right? So like it's, in, it's important to, to notice when they increase their troop numbers from 30,000 to 300,000, like these, these things aren't disconnected. Um, and as we talked to Jan about, 
Germany massively increasing capacity and also commitment to NATO defense um, strategies. Uh, NATO's changed their plan on uh, was it Estonia, Lithuania, and, and Latvia, I think, um, where they used to say that there'd be a kind of um, in you know in in kind of cloudy language, but they used to basically say if Russia were to invade those countries, they would expect to lose them immediately and then have to retake them. Um, and that that tactic has changed to you know first like border line defense, which would necessitate tens of thousands more troops. Um, so it's just, it's open preparation for something much grander scale than we're currently seeing, you know, tragic as it, as it is. Yeah. And thousands of losses on both sides already, but the fact that NATO is, is pretty op- openly kind of ramping up for something, an order of magnitude bigger should be pretty scary to everybody. And what's really, really frustrating to me in terms of the way this is analysed and presented in the media and by our politicians and et cetera, et cetera, again, everyone is bad. All, all world leaders suck. Um, but compare this active um, increasing of, of military numbers, this active um, positioning from NATO and, and its states to the outcry when China central... Uh, central government um, signed a new missive to allow strategic uh, military maneuvers outside of um, China's uh, geography, right? Like, mm. and everyone's like, they are trying to start a war. Like, <laughs> no, that like, knowing what we know about, like, the, the moves of US and NATO uh, and antagonism towards China, and now, you know, shown via this, this NATO meeting, Anything they do at this point is responsive. You know, it's a, it's in reaction to, mm. you know, the the world's biggest military alliance calling them a strategic threat. Mm. It, it's really unfortunate that because of the uh, wave of propaganda that that followed the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, mm. now everyone has, I think, internalized, or many people have internalized this idea that. Oh, you know, NATO's expansion had nothing to do with with what happened in Ukraine or what's happening in Ukraine. That's a complete. That's just Kremlin propaganda. It's a lie. Anyone who says it is is just um, either a useful idiot or you know deliberately lying because they want to help the Kremlin. And and because of that, because people have been just sort of browbeaten into believing that this that that the 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 expansion of NATO over the uh, ever since the end of the Cold War, had uh, absolutely nothing to do with that. I think uh, we're at risk of being blind to how potentially expanding NATO, or at least having NATO start to encroach into um, what you might call China's sphere of influence, um, how that might spark conflict there as well. You know, uh, the, the idea that we were sold when, when NATO expanded post-Cold War was that, well, by expanding, it'll actually guarantee peace because, you know, you're going to have more uh, 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 more countries being in alliance. It's it's more of a deterrent uh, against uh, Russia or another state. Um, and you know it's the same logic that 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 uh, is used when when people want to build up the military by some crazy amount. They say, well, no, no, it's actually the, the best way to ensure peace is through military strength. But in reality, I mean, all that sounds very um, logical. You know, it might sound very uh, uh, like it makes sense. But what we've seen in reality is that. When you start to militarize, when you start to build up military alliances, this has happened so many times through history. These things build up a momentum of their own, and they and and they end up actually causing the conflict that they're ostensibly meant to prevent. And and there is a very very realistic risk because we have not um, really properly 
uh, digested the, the mistakes of Western policy in, in Europe and towards Russia over the past 30 years and how that's led us to this particular terrible war. Because we haven't dealt with that, because we're being told that we shouldn't even think about, let alone talk about that, um, we are now uh, potentially making the exact same, or, or at least on the, at the start of making the same mistake, except now in Asia against another incredibly, not just powerful, but economically a significant country. I mean, we've seen the economic fallout in New Zealand and all over the world from what has happened when war broke out between Russia and Ukraine and really basically the West. Uh, I mean, China, uh, imagine what would happen if you start uh, some sort of war with China, um, not just in terms of the lives lost, but the economic uh, uh, just chaos that, that would unfold. I mean, it's, it's scary to think. And as far as like we can gather um, from, from what's happening, we've got a U.S. military and industrial complex, which almost seems invested uh, in starting ship with China. Uh, you know, even near the beginning of the um, war in Ukraine, we had the Pentagon uh, talking about, uh, and, and then this was all later, like they admitted that this was just lies that they made up to put pressure on China and on Russia, saying that China was giving arms to Russia or that they were like looking to get involved in some way. Um, all utter falsehoods. Um, that they later said, oh, yeah, we just said that to, like, pressure um, them on the world stage. We're doing counter, mm. um, counter propaganda. Um, yeah. the information that, warfare. Inf information, yeah, inf info war. Um, interesting. <laughs> um, and <laughs> they've been pushing that through the media. The media is happy to, um, to just regurgitate it. Where, where do you think this goes? You know, like... Well, those, yeah, those weapons and contractors need somewhere to flow, right? That's, that's the kind of political economy of this. Um, mm -hmm. And to, to kind of build on what Bronco was saying, the other obvious kind of political economy corollary is how the West's going to deal without Russia's gas once they start turning that off. Like, already look at the approval ratings for, you know, Biden, Macron... Um, even locally, uh, Boris Johnson, like people, people don't like having high cost of living. It's not a sustainable way to live. Um, and although the kind of the, the popular kind of defense of Ukraine probably polls very well, it's not going to keep these leaders in power um, as elections start coming up. Mm. And it's going to be well, can... interesting to see if they're forced to, to change tack on some of this stuff, especially if you look at the US at a probable Trump rerun which is going to be anti-nato anti uh involvement in world affairs trump could very plausibly run on a it's going to drill, be, drill yeah it will be that platform right that could be very popular i i can tell you that uh in may there was a a poll done by the associate press and they've been polling it pretty regularly you know what what people's highest priority was um until may it was making uh, sanctioning Russia effectively defending Ukraine and then, and then making sure that the economic blowback against the United States was, uh, that, that was kind of a secondary priority. In May, that changed. So now it was a, for the first time, a majority of people, 51% of Americans said, um, actually the, the, the top priority for us is actually making sure that uh, the, the economic uh, effect of this on us is, is the least bad that it could be. And, and actually punishing Russia kind of took a back seat. So already public opinion is starting to change. Which is why they should have, you know, ideally they should have negotiated something 
Uh, in April, there was a possibility to do that. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Boris Johnson traveled to Kiev and told uh, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the, the, the president of Ukraine, if you negotiate anything with Vladimir Putin, we're not going to um, recognize that. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, how many, how many Ukrainians have kept dying since then? How much territory has Ukraine lost yeah. since April where they, they, they could have avoided? You know, uh, one thing to, to circle back to our Proud Boys uh, conversation at the, at the beginning, uh, New Zealand, I, I think it is pretty much incontrovertible to say that New Zealand is more and more aligning itself with the US uh, in terms of some of this, these geopolitical conflicts. And that started long before our turn. Remember uh, the TPPA, that the US saw that as a, as a kind of counterweight to China and Asia Pacific region. There was a big debate at the time uh, and John Key had to say, no, 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 this is not about countering China. This is just about economic benefits. But, but that's not what it was about, not, not to the country that was the driving force behind this agreement. Um, so it has been moving in that direction. Really think about the fact that, okay, so we've designated the Proud Boys a terrorist organization. Um, and yet the country that we are increasingly aligning ourselves in foreign policy uh, may well once again be uh, governed uh, by a far-right leader who has quite openly made common cause with that same terrorist organization. In fact, that same terrorist organization uh, was was instrumental in trying to overthrow uh, or rather to, to prevent the peaceful transfer of power uh, when he lost the election to keep him uh, illegitimately in, in office. So does that really make sense? I mean, right there, you have just a, a glaring contradiction in, in New Zealand's policy. This is a terrorist organization. organization. This is very uh, uh, harmful to New Zealand security. Oh, by the way, we're going to become increasingly close with the country, with the government, with the with the uh, the, the president, um, who uh, makes common cause with that same terrorist uh, terrorist organization. Maybe maybe everyone's just hoping that like, hey, somehow um, the worst doesn't come to pass. Hey, I, I love to um, just flip a coin as well. That, that's that's how I do foreign <laughs> policy. Always I, always I, a good thing. <laughs> I, I do want to say like, I, we should um, wrap up soon, but mm. I just want to say I I don't think that Ardern did a bad job um, with her NATO address. Uh, she talked about de-escalation um, as mm -hmm. one of the main uh, kind of narratives that she was pushing for. Phil Twyford was um, in Europe as well, pushing for um, nuclear non-proliferation. Uh, they were there doing good New Zealand like stuff yeah. in, in, in that sense. Uh, so I'm, I was pleasantly surprised to see that she was using the stage to say, let's not have a war um, because I don't think that was a given. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I thought her remarks were actually, uh, I, I were very refreshing. I was glad that she was on there basically saying, hey, let's, let's not escalate this to a point where it gets really out of control. But, you know, but you also have to take this particular appearance in the grand scheme of all the other stuff that New Zealand yep. has done over, over the past, including the, the way that they kind of, you know, uh, uh, very, very vehemently criticized that deal between the Solomon Islands and, and China, very much aligning with Australia yeah. um, and, and the United States. And so when you take it in that total, this this is just one more step um, where, where mm. we're kind of slowly and slowly and slowly moving uh, closer into the U.S. sphere of influence. And, and China's not happy. And, mm. you know, they're, they're very unhappy about this. I mean, I, like I said, I don't think that we want to, necessarily uh, antagonize a country that is this economically 
crucial to 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 our country. Um, that would be my uh, <laughs> if I could leave people with a with a takeaway to think about after this episode. Maybe that's something that I would uh, leave them with. Yeah, there's a um, there's an Australian uh, comedy show called Utopia. I don't know if you've heard of it, but um, there's a scene in it where they're hearing kind of advice from defense uh, people who are saying we need to defend our strategic interests um, against threats in the region. And he ends up kind of asking them to explain and explain what that means and gets to the point where he's saying, so you're saying we need to invest more money in our defense to defend our trade with China from China. That's, <laughs> that's essentially Australia and New Zealand foreign policy, right? That's what our defense policy falls down to. Our, you know, by far biggest trading partner is China and the growth potential there is still huge compared to the rest of the world. But that's also what we're, we're terrified of, of being attacked, right? But yeah. It's, it's, no, exactly. And, and actually, maybe one, one last thing I would say just for myself is, is uh, none of this has to happen. There does not have to be conflict between the United States and China. Uh, it doesn't mean that they have to be best friends. It doesn't mean that they that we have to like everything that China does or that the United States does. Or that we have they can to be frenemies. They can be frenemies. They can have that. Yeah, but, but we have to get to a point where these countries, uh, these governments can cooperate because the greatest national security threat is not China, so even Russia. It's uh, climate change, number one. And then behind that, a whole host of uh, various global crises that that do not, they, they cannot get solved by military force. You cannot solve climate change by military force. You cannot solve the biodiversity crisis through military force. The only way you can solve it is by countries coming together, pooling their resources and their knowledge and, and trying to solve these problems together. And if we uh, divide the world into these regional blocks and expanding alliances that are, uh, you know, pissing one or another power off, uh, that makes that world far less likely uh, to, to get to for us. Um, and that will result in some, in far more, uh, you know, devastation than we're even, even seeing now in, in some of these conflict zones. And in the, in the face of the rising gas prices, both the UK and the US have opened up additional fracking fields. So this is only <laughs> going to make it worse, right? Wars make climate change worse, not better. Yeah. And what a lovely place to leave it, everyone. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I really had missed having you both on and ending on climate demoralization. Just... Um, well, you know, okay, look, if, if we can do it, if we can end on a, a slightly optimistic call to action, you know, what is New Zealand's role here? New Zealand's role should be to, to stress to these countries that we're supposedly a lot allied to, that at least these countries, you know, like the United States, that see New Zealand as important enough to, to, um, to try and, and court us to invite us to NATO. Well, okay, in that case, we should be using a platform as, as just an Ardern did. So, you know, I want to give a props here to push for diplomacy, to, to uh, push against, uh, you know, these, these expanding military alliances, to push for the stuff we talked about here. And so, and the way that we can do that is by pressuring our MPs, our government, you know, to, to do that as well, to tell them, hey, we don't want, uh, you know, we don't want to see more, more conflict and war. We actually want more cooperation globally. Fantastic. Uh, and what can you do? Uh, I've got the Patreon link in the summary. Uh, give us a few dollars um, to, to continue doing this uh, level of analysis. Um, do uh, independent left media, uh, which doesn't really happen anywhere else in New Zealand. Uh, really thankful to all our supporters uh, that are on the books. Uh, you're why this is able to happen. If you've enjoyed this, though, uh, you can also share it on Twitter. Um, we know that not everyone is able to uh, Give, give money away to um, burgeoning uh, progressive media uh, hegemonies. 
But if you if you share it with your friends and family, get it a bit more reach, uh, go to one of 200.nz and, and read our articles uh, and just be talking about it and engaging with your communities. Uh, every, every little bit of it helps. Um, getting organized on the ground is what's going to make a difference in the end. Um, so, yeah, we really respect those avenues as well. Thanks so much for listening to another week of One of 200. We'll be back uh, at some point, um, at least uh, next weekend. Until then, have a good one. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism No, you don't hate Mondays You hate capitalism Oh, you don't hate